The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're looking today at Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to begin by reading the first seven verses. We'll kind of work through the chapter, but we'll start by just reading the first seven verses of, of Daniel chapter 1. All right, so let's, uh, let's read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands, into his hands, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food, that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Uh, when we come to the book of Daniel, uh, it's, if you know much about the Old Testament, it's towards the more end of the Bible, and it's, of course, in your Bible kind of more towards the end, um, kind of towards the end of the story of, of what's going on. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a time when uh, Israel is, is in the process of being uh, destroyed, of ending the kingdom, right? And uh, one of the questions that the book wrestles with and deals with is a, is a kind of an important question or an interesting question. And the question is this, does God ever lose? Does God ever lose, right? Now, of course, we may say, well, theologically, of course, God never loses. But that's not how it looks here, right? And we love, we love stories uh, at the other end of Israel's history, at the beginning, uh, especially at the 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 pinnacle of the kingdom, some of its glory days, when, uh, when clearly God was winning. One of my favorite stories of God winning is the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and they each put their, uh, their offerings on different altars, and uh, it becomes a, a battle of prayer. And the prophets of Baal pray to their God to call down fire and consume the offering. And they pray all day, and of course nothing happens. And then Elijah gets up and he prays, and fire falls from heaven, and it consumes the altar. I mean, it consumes the the offering and the altar, right? And all the water they poured on it. It's like God wins, right? We like those kind of stories. Yeah, go God, right? We like to see this winning story. But then we come to Daniel, and Daniel is not Elijah, right? Daniel's not winning here. It says that uh, the king of Judah is defeated by the king of Nebuchadnezzar. He lays siege to the city of Jerusalem and he conquers it. 
and he conquers uh, Jehoiakim. And uh, he drags off Daniel as a prisoner of war. And along with it, items uh, of worship from the temple. And it's important to see that in ancient times, and in Bible times, when you defeated somebody, you just didn't defeat their king, but you, you conquered their god. Right? And so this picture of them taking items from the temple back to Babylon and putting them in the temple of Marduk, who was the idol god of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this means that God lost. Right? God himself, the God of the Bible, is defeated, uh, in the minds of the Babylonians anyway, and probably of everybody else, maybe even in the minds of the Israelites. Right? God lost. And this is kind of a shocking thing to, uh, to the Israelites because they were convinced that, uh, you know, some kings might lose, they might lose some battles, but they were convinced that God would, would not lose, right? That God would protect Jerusalem and the temple. And God had actually warned them over and over again that that wasn't true, that if they were not faithful, He would hand them over to their enemies. But they had this picture that, well, that might be true, but... But God's not gonna God's not gonna be taken captive, right? God's going to preserve and protect the temple because God has to win. But we see here that God actually doesn't win. And he allows himself to be taken captive and drug off as a prisoner of war and and symbolically put in the temple of of uh, the gods of Babylon. And this becomes a very important question for us. Like, uh, what happens to the glory of God when he's been taken captive, even if it's only symbolically, right? What, what does it mean when God, to God's glory, when God loses, like he does here in, in the time of the captivity of Israel? Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a relevant question for today for those of us who live and work and minister uh, and try to bring the light of Christ to Asia, where in many ways it seems like God has lost here. Uh, now, maybe God isn't being dragged off and put in some Buddhist temple, literally, but in some ways he kind of is, right? In some ways, God, God is not recognized. The God of the Bible, Jesus, is not recognized by, by most people, by the majority of people in Asia, right? They give him no account, no credit. They see him as having no power and no, uh, uh, no ability to save them. They don't bow to him. They don't acknowledge him, right? Uh, yesterday I was riding my bike and I... Right on the on the road, and I, I come to the scene of this Buddhist monk standing in the middle of the road, <laughs> about to get run over. Uh, and I'm thinking, what is he doing there? And then I notice that there's a motorbike parked right alongside the road, and right in front of him is this lady, who's bowing down to him praying. And I, I just was reminded of how God's losing here. And I wanted to just stop, and I wanted to tell this lady. I thought about it as I rode by. I thought maybe I should stop and tell this lady, stop. <laughs> You stop. Don't you realize this guy can't help you at all? He's got no power. He's going to die just like you. He's got no power. He can't help you. And he follows a guy who's already dead for a long time, right? And he did not rise from the dead. Um, but we live in a place where it seems like God has no power. It seems like, it seems like he's losing, right? And, and, and on top of that, like Daniel, we may find ourselves in personal circumstances where we feel trapped and powerless, uh, Daniel, not only is God drug out captive, but Daniel is and his friends. And they end up uh, as prisoners of war in very much less than ideal circumstances. Uh, not the circumstances they would choose for themselves. 
And it may, it could easily have felt for them uh, hopeless. Uh, I'm sure they were homesick. I'm sure they wanted the circumstances to change and to be able to go home to see their family and their friends and to go back to their old life. But they were trapped in these circumstances uh, that were difficult, uh, where they were, in, in essence, prisoners of war, right? Uh, what if life is not going the way we want it to right now? Right? How do we glorify God? How do we keep our eyes on God when our circumstances are not what we want? Right? And so the question uh, we see as we look to chapter 1 of Daniel is, what does it look like to live a life of faith and faithfulness in the midst of great adversity and challenge? Right? Uh, so uh, let's, let's turn to uh, verse 1. Um, and, and, and we see uh, basically God in the midst of three things. First thing is we see that God is in the midst of, of, of all circumstances. Right? He is the God of circumstances. Um, and uh, so it starts off, you know, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, into the, uh, king of Judah, into the hands uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, uh, we won't go into all, all of the uh, history of this. Uh, we could, but we won't. But Nebuchadnezzar was uh, rising to power. Uh, the Babylonian Empire uh, had defeated the Assyrians. Um, and... Uh, in the midst of all that, uh, nobody really cared all that much about Jerusalem or Israel. It was this tiny little country that didn't really matter much to any of them. But on his way to, uh, to, to defeat Egypt, um, Jerusalem happened to be on the way. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes a pick up at Jerusalem, and he besieges it. It doesn't last long. Uh, Jehoiakim really has no resources to fight back, and he eventually surrenders. Now this is not, it's important to understand that this is not uh, the final fall of Jerusalem. That would happen many, many years later. Uh, but it's, it's the beginning of the end for Jerusalem. And it's the beginning of the end for Israel. And within uh, 10 or 15 years from this point, uh, all of the Israelites would be drug off to Babylon. But on this occasion, uh, uh, Jehoiakim is defeated. He needs to start paying tribute uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, which he does for a few years, but then after a while he decides, well, I'm not doing this anymore, and he stops, which leads to another uh, attack by the Babylonians and a a worse destruction of the city. Um, But during this time, he he loses, he's paying tribute, and um, as we see, as we saw, Daniel and his friends and, and probably some other young men are taken in, in, in captivity to Babylon. Not so much as prisoners of war, although they were, but really um, it was a strategic plan on the part of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, kind of a brilliant plan, to drain off the, the brightest and smartest future leaders of, of Jerusalem and to put them in his service, right? So it's kind of like a corporate takeover where you take over the company and you siphon off the the brightest and smartest people in the company and move them over to your company, which makes you more successful and kind of dooms them to mediocrity at best or to failure. And that's kind of Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. It's like, okay, I'll let you guys continue on, but only with stupid people. <laughs> well, that's not completely true. Um, I'm taking the brightest. I'm taking your future leaders. These were uh, of the noble family, the most educated, the most... Uh, promising, skillful in wisdom, it says, endowed with knowledge. These were talented young men, right? Um, 
And then, as I said, also, uh, vessels were taken from the temple. And uh, very much strategic. The reason they took those temple items was not because they were beautiful, because they were made of gold, because they were precious, but because they represented uh, the God of Israel. And it was a way to show that they had conquered the God of Israel. The only problem with this whole scenario, and it's interesting, it says that he took vessels from the temple, like cups and spoons and saucers or something. We don't know. Furniture, right? Um, the, way it would have, the way it was really supposed to work, like this is how it would have been. The general would have said to his commander, go into the temple and bring out their God, right? Thinking it's an idol. So they go into the temple and they look around and they're like, well, there isn't one. Like, what do we do, right? Because the Israelites didn't have an image of their God, right? So the best they could do is take off furniture, <laughs> Because God doesn't have an idol, right? I think that's just funny. Um, but they take it symbolically. Okay, we'll take, we'll take cups and spoons and saucers and, I don't know, a lamppost. Um, that's the best they could do. All right. Uh, so, uh, so they take them back to Israel, and, and, or back to uh, Babylon. And we know that uh, the main purpose of this is so that Daniel and his friends, well, one, that they could show that their God was better than the God of the Bible. Secondly, to retrain these bright young leaders, future leaders, to become leaders in, in Babylon. And they got to go to the prestigious uni- University of Babylon uh, for a three-year uh, advanced learning study in uh, Chaldean culture and language. Um, and this wasn't, this wasn't an all-bad deal, right? They were, getting, they were getting the best education of the day. In fact, at this time... Uh, they had assembled in Babylon the most impressive library that was known in the world at that time. Impressive library with literally hundreds of, and even thousands of years of books and, and research, much of it very, very much kind of the cutting-edge science of the day. So it's kind of like these guys are going to school and uh, getting a first-class education, and they're getting this first-class education so that they can serve in high positions in, in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Like if they do well in this program and they succeed and they're successful, they will be placed in positions of leadership in, high up in government. Right? So this is not a terrible deal. Um, uh, and they would be studying this, this uh, wisdom of the ancient world. Now, it um, doesn't mean that they were necessarily studying calculus and trig and physics. Uh, a lot of what, the, what their study involved was how to, how to read signs in order to tell the future. And uh, one of their roles would be to advise the king. And if the king comes to you and says, uh, should, I go to, should I go to battle against this country? Or how are the crops going to be next year? Or should I expand here? It's really helpful for his advisors to be able to see into the future. And they believed that they could do this, that they could look into the future by being able to rightly interpret signs and omens and dreams and the stars. And uh, they would uh, cut open animals and look at their livers. And they, could, they thought they could tell the future from this. Right? So that's part of what they studied. Uh, we'll see that for them, uh, they actually excelled in this, not because they studied hard, but because God gave them supernatural power to do this. Right? So that's where Daniel and Hannah and Michel find themselves um, and it was not easy, even though they were studying in the best university of the day, and as we'll see in a minute, eating the best food of the day, or at least being offered to them. It still was hard, right? Um, uh, 
chances are, most, most scholars believe that these, these guys were only about 15 or 16 years old when they went. Okay, so these are young, young, young men, right, teenagers. Uh, they have been taken away from their home, their friends, their family, everything they knew. They've, they've lost their independence and their freedom. And even though uh, they're given a pretty decent life as students at this university, uh, they're not exactly free, uh, slaves, they're not free to return home, right? They're not, they're not free to choose their own education or their own major. You know, it's not like Hananiah could say, hey, you know, I was actually hoping to be a plumber. <laughs> Is that an option? Is there a major for that here? No, they, they, they have no freedom, no choices, right? They are told what they have to do and be. Um, and even though it was a great education, they're being trained for positions in, to serve their enemy, this is a nation that conquered them. And, and now they're being expected to be trained and equipped to actually lead and help advance this kingdom that is ultimately the enemy of their homeland. Uh, so, so this is hard, right? This is hard. They're living life in the midst of, of very challenging circumstances. And I'm sure there are many nights when they felt homesick and missed their life and missed... Uh, their family, right? Um, and and I'm sure they, they wanted it to be different, right? And I don't know what circumstances you find yourself in right now, or you will, uh, but sometimes life places us in tough circumstances, right? Sometimes things do not go the way we want. Um, and we want, we want to change it, right? We want to make it different. We want new circumstances. But sometimes it's just not possible, Right? Sometimes uh, we're stuck, and there's nothing uh, in our, no way for us to change our circumstances. Well, what then? Right? What do we do in times like that? Um, well, what we see is that uh, with Daniel and his friends, uh, that, that they're not the only ones that are trapped in these circumstances, but God himself has allowed himself, in a sense, to be trapped in the same bad circumstances, right? Uh, it's the very glory of God that is at stake here. And God has allowed his glory to be trampled uh, by, the, by the Babylonians. Right? So how do you make sense of all this? What is Daniel supposed to think? How is he supposed to think about God in the midst of all this? Well, <clears throat> the key verse is in verse 2, where we see that God really is the God of circumstances. Right? Even though things look so bad, God has not lost control. And he hasn't lost anything. And from the very beginning, uh, the story starts off, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Right? This is actually the Lord's doing. God is the one that has arranged and ordained this. And he is in control uh, of all. Right? Even though it looks terrible, Daniel has to keep this perspective, and he sees that God is the one doing this. Uh, and we know that uh, if you read the prophets, God had warned Israel over and over that this is exactly what would happen. That if they did not remain faithful to him, if they kept turning away from God and following false gods, that he would hand them over to their enemies. And it doesn't mean here that God is somehow the cause of evil, that God uh, uh, brought this wickedness through Nebuchadnezzar upon them because God is himself wicked or evil. But what it means is that God is sovereign. He's powerful. 
And he is able to work out his plan and his purpose in spite of wicked, sinful people. Right? In other words, God is not helpless. He's not limited by the wickedness and the wicked actions of, of human beings to fulfill his plan. Right? And he very much works through and in conjunction with uh, the blind and foolish actions of men to accomplish his purpose. Right? So God was, was in and was working out his purpose through, through Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, it's interesting, the word that's used here is, is the word Lord. It says the Lord uh, gave uh, Jehoiakim over. And the word here is the Hebrew word Adonai. Uh, and it's not the typical word that's used, the word for Yahweh. The word Lord, Yahweh, means like the God of, the covenant God of Israel. But uh, probably the, the word Adonai, Lord, is used here because it emphasizes uh, God's ownership, rule, and sovereignty. Right? God's in charge. Right? He's in charge of the circumstances. And uh, this is all happening uh, at God's hands. Right? And so it's important for us to remember that God is always in control, regardless of how out of control our circumstances may appear. We may not like our circumstances, and we might want to change them, but we have to understand that God is in control, and he is working out his purpose and plan in spite of our circumstances. Right? So the question is, can you trust that God has uh, you where you are for a purpose according to his plan? Right? So if circumstances are not what you would wish or what you want, can you see that God is still in control? Now I, I want to say kind of a disclaimer here. Uh, this does not mean that if you're in some kind of abusive situation or relationship where you can make choices to change it, that you should say, well, maybe God just has me here so I should stay in this abusive relationship. Okay, that's, not, that's not what we're saying here. Right? Clearly, if we have the power to make choices to change our circumstances, uh, and it would be wise to do so, do so. Okay? Um, don't, don't, and, and unfortunately... Uh, Recently, it's kind of coming out of the news where churches have told people, no, just stay in your abusive relationship because that's what you're supposed to do. No, no, right? No. Where we have power to make choices and change, uh, certainly do that. But, but the question is when, when you can't get out, when, when you're in a situation that uh, either can't be escaped or changed, or maybe where you just know this is where you're supposed to be, God's made it clear, but it's still hard, Right? Um, know that God is still sovereign in those circumstances. God is still in control. God is still at work, right? Daniel was exactly where God wanted him to be, uh, even though it wasn't what he would have chose for himself, right? God is in control. God is sovereign in every circumstance, right? Now, that all sounds wonderful. It's like we can say, yeah, amen, yeah, amen, God's in control, right? My life's miserable, but praise God, he's in control. That's, that's kind of one thing, okay? We, could, we can be like James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that God's working us at his purpose, okay? We can, you know, you know, all things work together for good. We can claim those. That all sounds well and good. But the problem is in, in Daniel... Um, by all appearances, it still looks like the God of Israel is a loser, right? Daniel can be comforted going, yeah, God's sovereign, God's in control. 
But to Nebuchadnezzar and to maybe most of Israel and to everybody else, it's like, wow, the God of Israel, yeah, he's a loser God, right? How, do, how does this, the glory of God, how can his glory be shown? How can his glory be evident when by all appearances it looks like God lost and is a loser, right? Uh, what, he's, what is Daniel supposed to do? Well, the story continues on. Um, and, and it deals with this problem, right? It says in verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Um, one of the things we see here is, is uh, in the midst of all Daniel's circumstances, Daniel resolves to be different, Right? He resolves to be different. He, he resolves not to defile himself with the king's food. Um, now, what was going on here with the food and the education, all of this, is to really turn Daniel into a Babylonian, right? And uh, to scrub out of his old life all of his old Jewishness and to make him as, as much as possible a Babylonian. Because if he's going to lead in the Babylonian government, he needs to be Babylonian through and through. That's what's the goal of the program. Um, but in the midst of all this, uh, there's a lot of things that Daniel couldn't really change. He couldn't change the fact that they changed his name. By the way, his, his name before uh, honored God, and now he has a name that actually uh, honors uh, the Babylonian gods, right? But he can't, he's stuck with it, right? He's stuck with his name. Uh, but uh, but he, he resolves to fight a battle uh, in, the, in the realm of food. Now, why food? Well, um, for Israel, one of the things that set them apart as God's people was their diet, right? And uh, there's nothing necessarily magic about it. And, of course, people have tried to show that somehow pork is bad for you and beef is better or goats are better. I don't know. Um, that's not the point, right? The point was that there was something that distinguished them, that made them different by what they ate. And so all the world around them knew that the Israelites uh, had a different diet. They, they ate some things and they wouldn't eat other things. This is what distinguished them and gave them an identity as children of God. That's what marked them and set them apart as unique and different. And so Daniel decides he wants to stay true to his identity as a worshiper of the God of Israel. And the way that he chooses to do that is by holding to the, the laws of food, right? And not defiling himself by eating the food of the Babylonians. Now, why would that food have defiled them? Well, we don't actually know. Um, it could be that they had things like pork and other things, or maybe ate the, the food that wasn't prepared in the right way, draining the blood out and all the things that met the law. That was likely. It's possible that this food had been offered first to uh, pagan idols. Um, uh, there could be other reasons. We don't exactly know. It doesn't say why. But Daniel felt that the king's food would have been uh, defiling. And, um, and so he, it was a way to fight this battle. It was a way for Daniel to mark himself out as belonging to God. Right? To make himself different. Uh, it was a way to separate himself from this pagan world and devote himself to God and his holy purpose for his life. In short, it was how uh, Daniel chose to glorify God 
in his life. Right? Um, and you see, uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, they had in Jerusalem, and, and we already saw a little bit of this, they had the temple, right? And the temple was supposed to be the place where the very glory and presence of God dwelt. Right? This would be a pretty cool thing. Now, we can't actually claim that at our church here, right? Like, we don't put up a sign out here and say, come to worship God in our temple because the glory of God is here. Now, actually, it is here when we all show up, right? Because as the collective body of Christ, as the living stones in whom the Spirit dwells, we together become uh, the temple of God, which is pretty cool. But we could do that in this room or outside or in a, in a cow pasture somewhere, right? Because it's, it's, we're the ones who are the temple. But for Israel, it was the building, right? They had the holy place and the holy of holies and in the holy of holy. There was no idol, but there was the mercy seat where the glory of God was supposed to hover, supposed to be present there, right? Now, so what, what, what the thinking of the Israelites was is, we have the glory of God in a box <laughs> in our temple, right? And so if you want to see the glory of God, come look at our temple. Now, that wasn't actually how it was completely supposed to work out, right? Not only was the temple supposed to reflect the glory of God, but all of society was actually supposed to reflect the glory of God. So in their diet, in their cleanliness, in their holiness, in the way they lived, in the way they treated each other, in the way they treated widows and orphans and aliens, and all those things, they were supposed to see kind of the fingerprint of God, the glory of God. But the Israelites hadn't done very good with all of that part of it, right? They worshipped idols, they abused widows and orphans, they uh, abused the aliens and strangers among them, they didn't follow the laws, but they still had the temple. Go temple, right? See, we've got the glory of God. What happens, though, for Daniel when he's now so far away from the temple, right? What happens when the glory of God has been taken captive, right? Well, Daniel realizes that if he's going to live a life to the glory of God, it's going to have to be through his character and his conduct, right? He's going to have to be a witness by the way he lives. He can't just point to the temple and say, oh, well, just look at the temple. The glory of God is there. Now, it's up to him to be a witness to the glory of God by how he lives. And so he chooses this battle on the battlefront of food, right? He re- resolves not to defile himself and to show and to give glory to God by standing out as one who's different, who's seeking to be faithful to his God, to represent him faithfully as a holy God, even in Babylon. And then there's something very powerful of the witness of a life lived right, and we see as the story goes on that uh, the chief of the eunuchs, the supervisor, and the one who's over him, as well as eventually King Nebuchadnezzar himself, is impressed by the witness of these young men. Right? He sees something. He does see something different uh, in the life of Daniel and his friends. Right? Um, and, and that's our call too. Right? We are called to stand out as exceptional. Now we're not marked apart by food anymore. Right? But we are to be marked out by a life that's different, right? And it's not by our dress. It's not by external things. It should be by the character of our life, by how we live, by how we love each other, by how we walk in holiness and character and moral purity. Uh, so, so Daniel has us resolve. Uh, but resolve is not enough. 
he also needs to have some resolve with diplomacy, right? Uh, so it says, it says uh, continuing on, it says, Therefore Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself by eating the food. He says, hey, I, have, I like permission not to eat the steak that you made me for lunch. Right? And I'm, the, 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 the supervisor is probably like, what's wrong with you? He says, like, like, actually what I would really like to do, instead of having steak and wine, can I just have bread and water? Now, a lot of times, we, you know, we, we, it's translated vegetables, that he asked for this vegetable diet. A lot of people are like really into this vegetable diet of Daniel. But actually, just, just so you know, the word vegetable here literally means just all the stuff that comes from seeds. It's seed stuff. So it was very likely, not, not that Daniel got a salad bar every day. Like, I could do that. That'd be okay. I was like, can I just get the salad bar? Probably not, right? Probably not. Now, maybe he got some broccoli along the way. But it's very, it's very possible that what Daniel was asking, really asking for was a, was a diet of bread and water. Okay, now, what is wrong with this guy? Now, you want to stand out, right? There's steak, there's beef stew, there's uh, mutton curry, you know, there's really good wine, there's this elaborate table spread. Uh, can I just have bread and water? <laughs> like, whoa, buddy, what is wrong with you, Right? Uh, it says, so that's what he asks. He says, uh, he, he asks, asks and he says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion inside of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, look, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Right? Good point. Right? So, so it's like the, 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 the eunuch, he's like, okay, Daniel, I appreciate your moral convictions. Like, I, I applaud your moral convictions. But we're talking my head here. Like, uh, if, if, if you look bad, I look dead. Right? So, no. No. No, this is a bad idea. So, uh, Daniel could have stopped right there, right? And, and really... This is a bold and gutsy move on, on, on Daniel's part, but it's also not an easy request. One commentator gives about six reasons why this would have been a really hard thing to do. First, this diet was specially ordered by the king. So not, not eating, it was actually disobeying a direct order of the king. Um, which, number two, in that day could mean death. Right? You're defying the king's orders. And if it goes badly, uh, it could be... Uh, it could mean death, and it certainly would have for the, apparently for the, the eunuch, uh, the servant. Um, but at the very least, even if it didn't mean death, number three, it doesn't put you in favor, right? It labels you as a troublemaker. Like you're that guy who always has such a complicated thing to order at a restaurant. Are you one of those people? Like you can't just get what's off the menu. You have to rewrite the whole menu, right? Are you one of those people? Um, if you are, like you're not endearing yourself to your server. They're not saying, oh, I hope they come back because I love serving them because they make my life so miserable. Right. Well, that's kind of what they're doing here. It's like you're making yourself a troublemaker. You're not putting yourself in position uh, to advance well. Like you're not going to get a recommendation. Oh, yeah, this person was easy to work with. I, I recommend them for a real high position because they're a team player. No, they're not a team player. They're a pain in the neck. Right. Um, Giving up steak, for, steak and wine for bread and water was, would have been hard, right? For three years, right? Daniel was signing up for something that would be 
hard, right? I mean, I, I'm sure he saw that food, smelled it. It's like, oh, this, 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 this is tempting, right? Uh, but, but no, right? He's a long way from home. Number five, he's a long way from home. Who would know? Mom's not looking. Maybe God's not looking. Maybe God's back in the temple in Jerusalem, and I could get away with it, right? Um, maybe, lastly, maybe it would have been super easy to feel that, well, God failed us. God stuck us here. God didn't come through for us, so why should I be faithful to God? God wasn't faithful to me. Uh, I'll just go with the program. And especially when the first round meets with no, right? Ashpenaz says no. Sorry, appreciate your convictions, but uh, I don't want to die today. So no, right? Daniel could have said, okay, well, we tried. It's okay. I'll just go with the program. But he was resolved. Right? He laid it, literally, he put it on his heart not to do, to defile himself, not to do the wrong thing. So, round two. So, so then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel. Okay, so there's the chief guy up here, but then apparently there was kind of a lower down flunky who was his, his uh, advisor, right? his super, direct supervisor or whatever. Uh, he goes to him and he says, okay, I have a plan. Um, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be compared, be observed. And you deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, I love this, that Daniel, uh, Daniel is diplomatic, right? He is sensitive to the situation that his moral convictions are putting others in, Right? Um, and, and of course the plan works. Um, so he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Uh, some people would say this is, so here, this is what, um, depending on how you view a vegetarian diet, right? Some people say, well, of course they look better because a vegetarian diet is more healthy, right? Others would say, there's no way eating bread and water you could get fatter. It's a miracle. I'll let you pick, right? You pick whichever one of those interpretations you want. Uh, either way, the plan worked. So the steward took away their food, the, the, the good food and wine, uh, and gave them a, a diet of bread and water and vegetables, right? Uh, so it works. <clears throat> um, but why does it work, right? Why does it work? It'd be easy, really easy to chalk this up to Daniel's brilliance, his diplomacy, his uh, way that he thought this through, right? But we have to go back to the beginning of this account. And, and it says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This all worked ultimately because God gave Daniel and his friends favor and compassion. Right? God is in the circumstances, but God is also in the solutions. Right? Whatever circumstances you are in, if you are resolved to live according to God's plan and purpose, know that God will give you exactly what you need to solve the dilemmas that are in front of you.
right? Uh, it seemed impossible, right? It seemed like this was not going to work out for Daniel. But God gave him what he needed uh, to find favor, to keep his commitments, to keep his resolve, to do what was right. I remember when we first uh, were here, whatever it is now, uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago, when we were trying to set up the Family Connection Foundation, right? And everybody at that time, everybody who I talked to advised me and said, the only way to do this is if you pay bribes to the government officials, because that's just how it works in Thailand. So I asked my Thai staff person uh, who's still with us, uh, Kun Dao, I said to her, I said, do you think that's really true? Do you think we really have to pay bribes? And she says, no, I don't think so. She said, it will be a lot harder if we don't, but I don't think we have to, and I think we shouldn't. I think we should just let God work it out. And it did take a lot longer. And ever since that time, it's always been a harder road, always. But God has always worked it out, right? Because we committed to honor him by doing the right thing and not taking shortcuts, right? God is in the solutions and he will work it out. Last thing, right? Okay, so it's important to see this first section. We see God is in the circumstances because it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Secondly, we see God is in the solutions because it, is, because it was God who gave favor, right? Gave favor. And then in verse 17, uh, we see that God is, he is the God of success, right? And it begins this way, verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them. God gave them, right? Learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Right? And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Right? In the midst of this all, God gives them not only solutions to their problems, but he gives them success. Like, actually advanced success. Right? Um, they could interpret dreams. Right? And so at the end of time, when the king uh, had commanded that they should be brought in to interview them, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, so all these youth, so the graduating class of, you know, whatever it was, I, I won't even guess a date, uh, 680, no, 6, 605 B.C., that's the date. Graduating class of 605 B.C., all interview Nebuchadnezzar, and they're interviewing for jobs in his government. None answered him like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And the word, the phrase to stand before the king means he gave them positions of uh, servant, service in his government. And, and we see later, pretty high positions. They did so well that they, they were promoted to really high positions in, in government. Right? God gave them exactly what they needed to be successful uh, and to reach the pinnacle of what he had for them, right? Um, learning and wisdom. Uh, and what they needed, what that means is for them, what they needed more than anything was, was Babylonian-style wisdom. And, and that's what God gives them. Uh, specifically for Daniel, the ability to, to interpret dreams and visions, which kind of sets us up for next chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, Right? Was it because Daniel excelled in examining sheep livers? No, right? It was supernatural. 
right? God gave them a wisdom that only God has, right? So they had better wisdom because it was wisdom that came from God, not from sheep livers, okay, or from interpreting the stars. It was supernatural, right? God gave them what they needed to be successful and to fulfill his purpose so that they could glorify him in everything that they did. Praise God, you know, we have been promised supernatural gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Regardless of your circumstances and how much you may feel like life is not what you want it to be, if you're in Christ, you have been given a supernatural gift to be successful in fulfilling God's purpose for you, right? Instead of worrying so much about changing our circumstances, maybe we need to worry more about just being successful where we are with the gifts God has given us and the abilities God has given us and the calling that God has given us where we are. Because right? that's in the end what matters most. Right? So they get promoted and then it says, uh, kind of the story rounds out this way. Uh, uh, therefore, uh, they stood before the king, and, and, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. So, as time went on, they became advisors to Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine? Imagine being an advisor to the, the most powerful world leader. Okay, that's what Daniel and these guys were. They were his advisors, right? And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So not only among their graduating class, but they actually stand out among all of the king's advisors. They are the most impressive. Ten times better. Right? Their, their advice is always the best. Why? Well, because it comes from God, right? It comes from God. And I, I love the I love how this I love this picture and I hope you can see this picture. Like the chapter begins with this vision of Israel defeated, Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, defeated and conquered by a more powerful king. The 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 very temple treasures drug off in captivity and put in the temple of a of a false god, the god of Babylon. And, and the best and brightest of Israel's nobility, their sons, drag, drug off and retrained to become leaders in their enemy's government. It looks, like, it looks like loss at every level. It looks like defeat at every level. But it ends here with God's chosen boys advising Nebuchadnezzar and telling him how to run his country. <laughs> Like, who's winning here, really? And if you don't believe that, if that's not good enough, notice how this chapter ends. And Daniel was there in this position, in these positions high up, telling kings how to run their country until the first year of King Cyrus. That was a long ways away, 60-some years later. And what's significant about that is Cyrus is not a Babylonian, he's a Persian. And what it means is Daniel was an advisor to kings even after Nebuchadnezzar died and his kingdom fell because the kingdom of Babylon would fall. Babylon itself would be defeated by the Persians and Daniel would be there to see it. 
And he would be there to advise the next king and the king after him until he came to Cyrus. Cyrus is also significant because Cyrus is the one who begins the return of the exiles back to Jerusalem. Right? Does God lose? I don't think so. Right? Even in the first chapter of the book, we see God's in control. And he wins. Right? In the end, he wins. Um, see, the only battle that really matters is the last battle. Right? Think of a soccer season. Soccer team trying to win the world championship. Does it matter if they lose a mid-season game? Does that matter? Like imagine if Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi lost the game in the middle of the season. They said, oh, I've lost. I'm, I'm done. I'm finished. I quit. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. Right? Is that what they do? No, they would never be champions if that's what they did, right? The only game that matters is the last game of the championship, right? In the last game of the championship, God wins. That, that's also a message of the book of Daniel that we'll see later on, right? Yeah, God might have lost today in this battle, but in the last battle, he does not lose, right? And so the, the challenge to, for Daniel is to... Keep your resolve, Daniel. The challenge is the same for us. Keep your resolve. To live for God's glory in the midst of your current circumstances, whatever they are. To be faithful to God and to trust Him. To trust Him to work out the problems. To trust Him to, to rescue you and to give you solutions, to give you the path forward to trust him to make you successful in fulfilling his purpose, right? That he will give you everything you need, right? Uh, Because uh, sometimes it looks like God has been defeated. But God wins even in the midst of losing. And that's never seen more visible than it looked that day when it seemed like God had all suffered ultimate defeat on that dark day when Jesus died on the cross, right? And all of his enemies believed that they had won. Satan himself believed that he had won. But little did they know that uh, what looked like defeat was actually God's victory. That through the cross, he conquered sin and death and the grave, right? He won, even in defeat. And so it's our hope, right? That's our hope, that we keep our focus, uh, that in the midst of uh, whatever circumstances, right, God will be glorified, and he will accomplish his good purpose. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.